If you got in your car and were driving 60 miles an hour toward a brick wall and stepped on your brake 10 feet in front of that wall, did the brake fail? No. The decision process in terms of stepping on the brake soon enough. The most popular video on YouTube was shot in Puerto Rico. The last time I saw it was 6 billion views. They presented at an Apple event that we were also coordinating. And they came up to us and said, hey, you guys taught us how to use Spinal Cut. It was amazing to me. This is the language of business a podcast to inform and inspire entrepreneurs, anyone thinking about a startup or a small business looking to rebound from the pandemic. Hear about strategies that work and strategies that don't work from people who've been there and done that. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Gregory Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. In this episode, we hear from the guy who wrote the book on Final Cut plugins and killer video editing and a response from Adobe. Here's Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. Mark Spencer is a creative guy. How many video editors do you know who are equally fluent in Porter's Five Forces and Elasticity of Demand? Currently, he's creative partner at Ripple Training, where they produce tutorials and plugins for software packages like Final Cut Pro and DaVinci Resolve. Mark, welcome to the Language of Business. Thank you very much, Gregory. Really happy to be here. You got your MBA at Wharton and started off as a CFO in the financial world. How did you then pivot to video editing? Yeah, that was a bit of a shift, wasn't it? Just a bit. At the time, I was CFO of a startup software company in San Francisco. It was a lot of fun, especially in the beginning when we were small. I joined the company when there were seven employees and grew it to about 265, I think. I wanted to do something else. I wasn't really interested in a bigger company and I always had a background and a fascination with photography and filmmaking, but I didn't think filmmaking is something I could ever really do because of all of the technical requirements. But Final Cut Pro came out in 1999, the original version, and that really changed my life. I saw that and I got excited about it. All of a sudden, you could edit on a computer for a $1,000 piece of software instead of $50,000 for an Avid. So I started dabbling in that while I was still in my existing role in my company. But over time, I began to do more and more on the video side. I shifted to consulting, basically, in the high-tech field while I continued to build a video business at the same time. But before you got involved in this, if I remember correctly, you also authored several books on Final Cut Pro. Yeah, that was what's really helped. I mean, honestly, video business aspects are very fun, but it's like hard to figure out how you make money to make a living. I wanted to be able to do that. I locked myself in a room and taught myself After Effects over the course of a couple of months while I was doing other things. And then I put a little demo together and I showed it at a user group meeting. And that led to somebody making an introduction. I got invited by Peach Pit Press, who produces a lot of different technical books for using software, to do a book for a related product to Final Cut Pro called Motion, which is a motion graphics application similar to After Effects. So I did that book, and I found that I really loved writing books. I loved the technical aspect to it and the artistic aspect, everything about it. That was kind of my lead-in as I was able to build some income on writing the books, and that led into all of the other training aspects that happen down the road. Which is more popular, Mark, the tutorials or the plugins? It's hard to say. I mean, people are interested in both. Different aspects bring them to us. For instance, there's some people who know us for training for a long time and will already have a relationship with us. So then we introduced plugins. It was a new thing for them to see and get excited about. And then there are people who never know anything about our training, but found us through plugins. So they're like, oh, you know, we wanted to some titling or some transitions or some tracking or something like that. And they got our plugins and then discovered we did training. Many people can use both. It's hard for me to say which is more popular. They're both good, strong pieces of our business that we've built separately originally. And the plugins came in 
years later, but we've been doing plugins for probably, God, I don't even know now, maybe seven or eight years, something like that, maybe more. On the day street production side, which is a larger revenue driver, corporate work or entrepreneurs? Primarily corporate work. And over time, I've gotten more and more involved with Ripple Training, where usually the bulk of my time now is involved in producing training and plugins for Ripple Training or updating training because software changes quickly. That's why books aren't as effective as they used to be because software keeps changing faster and faster. And the only way to keep up with it really is to produce online training because you can update it. My production company kind of ramps up and down depending on a couple jobs will keep me really busy for a couple weeks, a couple months, and then I'll be back into doing more stuff on the tutorial side. On the Daisy production side, that kind of keeps my creative juices flowing because it's not fun for me just to sit and be editing and producing tutorials all the time. I want to be somebody who teaches what they do. So I want to be out shooting as much as possible and bringing that and having that inform the training process. And who do you view as your target market on the Ripple training side? Is it people who don't know anything about editing and want to get into it or experts who are always looking to improve their skills? So the answer is yes. <laughs> It really runs the gamut. We literally have kids that are brand new that are jumping in. And most kids today don't sit down and go get a structured tutorial. They ping YouTube to find out where they get stuck. And that's why we have very big YouTube presence where we produce weekly, a couple of pieces a week usually, so that people can find us and find that we're domain expert. And eventually that will usually lead them into, oh, I actually need to sit down and learn this or get a plug-in. Or older retired folks who are just like dabbling and they want to learn how to use Spotify to do vacation videos. So we have side of beginners, but we've also trained. It's been so exciting to me actually to go back when we did more in-person events. We have somebody come up to us who's the most popular video on YouTube was shot in Puerto Rico. It is the most popular video on YouTube. Last time I saw it was 6 billion views. Wow. They presented at an Apple event that we were also coordinating and they came up to us and said, hey, you guys taught us how to use Final Cut. It was amazing to me. That's a great story. It's like, hey, we learned from you guys. It's been this really gratifying thing to get people involved in it in the first place and then people who have been around a long time who are very high level are learning the basics from our training. Love that. On the same subject of YouTube, you currently are up to over 80,000 subscribers. Congratulations on that as well. How long did something like that take? It takes a long time. We've had a YouTube channel for five, six years, something like that. And I wish we had done it a few years before then. We were dabbling in it. We've actually been doing a weekly series called Mac Break Studios, a video for 10 years now, well over 500 episodes, but we really didn't push that in terms of our own channel until about five or six years ago. It's a long slog to build that audience and you've just got to be constantly having new content and constantly be interacting. You know, you've got to be watching the content, watching the comments, responding to the comments in order to build that up. Just in terms of folks who want to get into that, you sort of realize it's a big commitment to really try to build a channel and build a brand in that space. Why, Mark, are you primarily focused on Final Cut and Motion as opposed to Adobe or Avid? For me personally, these are the tools that I use. I can't cover everything. And so I choose the things that I really like to work with and really enjoy. So I really teach the things that I love and I'm learning myself. Where do you see the industry going in the next five years? You said you've been at this for well over 10 and you've seen a lot of software come and go and be changed and updated. What do you think is going to happen over the next five years? I guess a couple things. The trend toward lower price of everything, lower cost of entry for everything. 
you can get amazingly powerful software, even like Bonica Pro is $300. It has been updated 16, 20 times in the past 10 years. By the way, Bonica Pro 10 is 10 years old as of yesterday or the day before yesterday. It was the 10-year anniversary of it being introduced at NEB in 2011. Over those 10 years, if you bought it 10 years ago for $300, you've had, I think, at least 20 upgrades for no charge. The cost to get in this business is lower. Also, with the camera side, you can buy fantastic cameras that shoot great quality for low and low prices. And I think that's going to continue. So then software and hardware, it's lower barriers to entry to get into. And there's a ton of free training out there. From our perspective, where we make a living in training can work for and against us. We produce a ton of free training, get people interested. But if all the training is free, then, then we're out of business. It's kind of a challenge for us is how do we continue to add value to people when there is so much free out there and available. And one thing we try to do about that is provide a structured training that is tightly scripted. So you get a lot of information in a short amount of time, rather than trying to piece together how to do something, you can really get a sense of how to do everything quickly. So we try to do that. But I think that trend is going to continue. There's going to be more and more free stuff. More and more people will get involved in it and want to get trained and want to learn how to software. It's kind of funny because access is getting to be less and less of a problem, but you still need to know what you're doing. Even though the tools are getting easier to use on the software and hardware side, things are everything is getting easier to use. There's still a lot to digest and learn on both the production side with lighting and sound and camera movement and on the post side between editing and color correction and sound design and titling motion graphics and visual effects. It's a very big field and there'll always be a place for teaching people how to tell stories. Mark, there is a dizzying amount of information out there. Somebody can put Adobe Rush or iMovie on their phone. They can go down the Adobe path, the Blackmagic DaVinci path, the Apple path. For somebody looking to get started in this, what would your first piece of advice be? My first piece of advice is to focus on storytelling and not on gear, on the hardware or software side. It's really easy to get drawn into all these YouTube videos of reviewing and wanting to buy the latest whatever, thinking that's going to make your life easier. But the most important thing is having a compelling story to tell. And everybody has their own perspective in life and has a compelling story to tell. That's the biggest thing. Once you have that, you can use what you've got. The best camera is the one that you have with you, and that's usually a phone. If it's an iPhone, there's a very natural path because iMovie is on your phone and it's free, and it's free on your phone, and then you can move that onto your computer, and it's free on your computer. And if you start to hit the limits of iMovie, which by the way, is you can go pretty far with that. We have actually training on the App Store on how to use iMovie, and we've done it in conjunction with iJustine. We did a training on how to use Bonica Pro on the App Store as well. But once you get into it, you get it with a phone and iMovie, which is essentially free if you already own the phone and you've got iMovie, you've got a computer. And then as you get better at it, you can start to move up. So iMovie, you can bring everything in iMovie into Final Cut Pro 10 and it will all appear exactly the way it did in iMovie with all the color correction did, all the editing, all the transitions, all the titling, whatever. So it's a very natural path to go. But the basic thing is just start telling stories. Just start shooting things. Just start talking to people to start interviewing people. And the other stuff will come. Don't get lost going down the rabbit hole of YouTube videos of what mic you have to have and what light you have to have. And just don't worry about that. It's all about story. For someone like you who has literally written the book on video production and a lot of Apple's products, what skills are you trying to perfect these days? 
That's a great question. I'm always trying to get better. In fact, one of my goals is shoot every day, no matter what, because I can get stuck in here in the computer and just do that all the time. And then I have work shoots that are great, but I just try to always shoot every day to do something new and different. So what I'm personally working on right now is I recently upgrade. I've got a Sony A7S III that I'm trying to get better at. So that I'm very fast with all my settings. So I don't have to think about messing with the camera when I'm shooting, that I, I know how to do everything. So I'm trying to get better using my camera, better at being very good and fast about sound. And also I'm getting more practice using a gimbal and trying to get better. So on the production side, I'm really just trying to be better and more intuitive with my tools so I can focus on the subject that I'm shooting. Mark, thank you very much. Hey, Craig, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Mark Spencer, creative partner at Ripple Training. Back to you, Don. Thanks, Craig. Coming up, a response from Adobe when the language of business continues. I didn't even realize what it meant to be in a top tier business school until my first day. And I just really, for the first time, felt like I was in a place where everybody knew what was going on and everyone was incredibly driven to study this and perfect this field. And so I think being in a top business school really means that you are finding the barriers and the edges of the field and pushing them a little farther. And that's what Questrom has taught me over the past four years. Questrom's really helpful because you get to not only study the basics of business, such as accounting or marketing, but you really get to dive further in and to see applications of the health sector and how business applies to sustainability efforts around the world. They really want us to kind of focus it on four emerging areas, and those areas were healthcare, security, sustainability, and technology. Those are really where the jobs are going to be. They really want us to come out from the Question School of Business and be able to work in any area of the industry. Interested? Go to bu.edu slash questrum. You're listening to The Language of Business. In part one, we heard from people raving about Final Cut Pro. And now in part two, it's Adobe's turn. Back to Greg Stoller. Thank you, Don. How does the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster in 1986 relate to software communication strategies today? We're on location virtually with Stephen Hart, who is a senior customer success manager at Adobe, and welcome to the language of business. Thanks, Greg. And that's a that's a great example to indicate why everybody, regardless of their discipline, needs to be effective communicators and storytellers. If I were to ask your audience or you today, what failed in the 86 Challenger disaster? Most of your audience would say the O-ring, the rubber things that sat between the sections on the solid rocket boosters, that's failed. Technically, they failed. In reality, it was a communication process that failed. The engineers at Morton Thiokol couldn't convince the decision makers that morning not to launch because it was too cold. It launched and it was the disaster that we know it is today. Converse to that example is if you got in your car and were driving 60 miles an hour toward a brick wall and stepped on your brake 10 feet in front of that wall, did the brake fail? No. The decision process in terms of stepping on the brake soon enough is what failed. So using that as a departure point, so much of your role at Adobe is to work with schools. How does the important communication strategies associate with Adobe's approach and how is it different than B2B or B2C? In a school, students need to graduate and be effective communicators, whether they're engineers, whether they're economists, business people, creative. 
certainly journalists. And every one of them need to be able to have the skills and tools in order to do that, to be educated on that process. They also need to be educated in terms of good consumers. They need to understand the capabilities of what's out there today and how media is put together so they can discern the veracity of stories and things along those lines. When somebody enters the commercial world, it behooves them to be useful in using those tools so they can be successful in doing what they do, just like the example I gave in the challenge. So why not just give them the software for free and be done with it? Give them the software for free. Well, we do live in a capitalistic world <laughs> and we do need to maintain our level of innovation. And it is economically impossible for a company like Adobe to give software away and to be able to support those markets at the same time. But Steve, couldn't it be said that if you give it away for free during the four years that they're students, that they will essentially not be able to live without it? And after they graduate, they will be some of your most ardent customer adopters? We hear that often. I would say the amount of support that Adobe brings to the education market is not inexpensive. And the ability to be able to convey the story I'm conveying to you today, sure. let alone working with other academics and university leaders as they're incorporating these concepts into the curriculum. And as we continue to innovate at their behest, we can't do that in a gratis situation. So you have come up in part with a creative campus initiative in order to promote digital literacy. How does that work, please? Creative campuses are universities in North America, worldwide actually, that have invested in the concept and idea of digital literacy that, going back to my first point, regardless of one's discipline, a student needs to be digitally literate, if not digitally fluent, in order to enter the workforce today and be relevant in terms of content creators and content consumers. And you hold these Creative Campus events throughout the calendar year. When was the most recently one held? The most recent Creative Campus we held was just two, three weeks ago, virtually. Normally, these events are roughly quarterly. We started about five or six years ago with a small group of interested academics in a small meeting in California. This has now grown to attract well over 100 instructors, professors, administrators from universities, and, and some K-12 through as they exchange ideas in terms of incorporating digital components into the curriculum. And is the hope then that if they are market adopters, that they will then be even better salespeople for their students in terms of adopting the software? That's one way of saying it. Obviously, we are a sponsor of this program. We're the glue that brings it all together, and we bring the people to the virtual event or the real event when those start up again. But it is not an Adobe commercial. You won't see people getting up in front of that audience and saying, purchase Adobe software early and often. That's not the point. But clearly they must be working if this isn't the first year that you've done this and you've gone from one to 100 in terms of universities. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Exactly. And to be clear, not 100 universities. The universities that are now deemed creative campuses are in the 40s, I believe. Still, it's more than one. Yeah, it's drawing 100, if not 150, 200 people to attend from a variety of schools. Something I've found intriguing about Adobe's pricing strategy is unlike other software companies that you buy it and you own it, you essentially rent the software to people on a monthly basis. How has that been working out for your company? Well, let me correct you on something there. Most software today is indeed a subscription process. Most enterprise companies that are doing business with either universities or commercial companies or the government are leasing 
software to the user base. And it's working very well. We were not the first to convert to this, and we are certainly by no means the last. The reason why we converted to a subscription-based model, as opposed to selling software in a block and delivering it like it's a bag of potatoes, is that it allows us to continue to innovate, add additional features, and respond to the market much more quickly. Further, the concept of the software is now licensed or granted to an individual from a named perspective. So when that end user logs into the software, logs into the platform, there's a ton of services that come on top of the applications that you're used to using, not just the software that's running on the local computer. Such as Creative Cloud, would that be an example? That's an excellent example. And machine learning and other intelligences are applied to content as the end user is creating it. In preparing for this interview, I was intrigued to discover you have over 100 products, Adobe Photoshop being probably the flagship. Are they equally as popular with your consumers? Do people even know that you have that many products available for leasing or renting? Well, I'll tell you this. So when I joined Adobe in 2000, not only did I know all the products, but I could more than likely demo all the products. Today, we are a much larger company. We have products geared toward a much more diverse group of constituents. You're referring to the creative cloud and the digital media products. We have a whole catalog of products geared toward the business to business marketing cloud, we refer to it too. So if you were to ask any one of those folks in one of those communities, what's the more popular software, you might get a very different answer. In a small group, if you were interviewing a magazine layout person and I said, what's the most popular software? They would probably say InDesign. Sure. There's no question that Photoshop and Acrobat and PDF are the applications and file formats that immediately come to mind when doing that word association test. What does Adobe mean to you? How do you and your team go about developing new products? You said that you're constantly updating them if people have a Creative Cloud subscription, but how about something brand spanking new? How does that happen and how often? It's happening all the time. We have groups of researchers and product managers constantly working with the general public, working with our consumers, working with businesses, working with universities to figure out what that next great thing is, whether it's a great big giant application or whether it's a particular feature that will be incorporated into an application. And we are often working on things that never make it to market. Quite often, though, we'll demonstrate some of those at an event during our annual creative conference. Actually, we have two conferences every year, Digital Summit, which is going on this very week, and Adobe Max, which is geared more toward the creative audience. That's in the fall. And each one of those has an event that we call Sneaks, where engineers and product managers and others will get up in front of the audience and give a peek on some of the very interesting things that R&D is working on. Some of them make it to market, some of them don't, seeing what sticks to the wall to some degree. But Very interesting. So many people in the private sector, meaning outside of academia, have opted to work at home. Uh, so many students are now attending classes remotely. Obviously, we all hope this is going to be distant memory as soon as possible. But during 2020 and now in 2021, has this been a net positive, a neutral, a net negative for people using Adobe's software products? Absolute net positive. This year in the remote world that we're living in has demonstrated the need for creative tools to communicate, number one, 
And number two, for the whole concept of the cloud connection. So end users and businesses can collaborate from a creative perspective. What keeps you up at night, Steve, the most about your relationships with universities? If you had a crystal ball and could absolutely be guaranteed to chart out the next three or five years and have 100% success scores, what would that world look like to you right now? 100% success? Yeah. Uh, 100% success would be communicating to university leaders and having that light bulb go off in their head, realizing that regardless of the students they are graduating, they need to have a creative component in their curriculum and they need to be good communicators. If I'm successful in that, if Adobe's successful in that, everything else will come into play. Good answer. Steve, thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate the time. Steve Hart, Senior Customer Success Manager at Adobe. Don, back to you. Thanks, Greg. And that's part two of our look at killer video editing tools. Support for the language of business is from Boston University Questrom School of Business. We now have downloads in 40 states and 75 countries. We really appreciate the support. The language of business is available wherever you get podcasts. Or just ask Alexa. Our social media is by Jennifer Powell of the Excellent Writers Group. Music by Randy Barth of Osui Media Group. Consulting producer, Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Direction, audio editing, and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, thanks for listening to The Language of Business.